This podcast is a production of Faith Living Church. If you like what you hear, join us for church sometime in our Plantsville, Connecticut location, Saturdays, 6 p.m. or Sundays, 9 and 11 a.m. or online anytime at faithlivingchurch.com. We're going to continue with this issue about being horizontal and talk about the ultimate horizontal issue and relationship today. Cool? We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. And, um, and it's going to try to make it very, what we're asking, to be very, very simple. So first things first, who here ever did um, show and tell when you were a kid? Pretty easy? Hard to do? Hard to do show and tell? No, pretty easy to do show and tell? Easy to do show and tell. It was always hard for me because I'm like, weirdly, um, I like talking um, but not generally about myself. Usually, if you know me, you'll, you'll know that most of my stories about myself are about failures because I think it's funny. Um, uh, but it's, it's usually, you know, like doing a resume feels weird. So show and tell is always a little weird. And usually because when I do talk about something I'm excited, I get these kind of looks from people like, you really are a weirdo. Yeah, things like that. So, you know, it kind of makes me think twice about it. So I'm going to take a risk today and, uh, and tell you something about myself and use that to talk about this issue of when we think about this horizontal relationship. So Pastor Ron's going to talk about having a vertical relationship with God. And if you were not here uh, over Easter for, for whatever reason, really need to go back and it's online, go give that uh, message a listen. Really, really powerful stuff. Some of the stuff that was in there last week is actually in here this week. Um, uh, I think it's really tremendous. So he talked about that, about having a vertical relationship with God. And he's been talking about having a horizontal relationship, meaning a relationship with other people. What that means when you've got this part right, what that does to this part. Cool? So, uh, so we're going to do that. We're going to talk about this from the issue of show and tell. Cool? Easy as show and tell. So I'm going to show you something about myself, and now then we're going to talk about it. Cool? So um, one of the things that I like, weirdly, is maps. I study maps. I just, it's a weird thing. Um, there was like, there was like a, in, uh, in the bank when I was growing up as a kid in Wallingford, there was a picture of a map of Wallingford from like the, uh, like the early 1900s, like 1905 map of Wallingford. And I was looking at it, trying to find it, and I found that the street that I lived on, grew up on, which we considered to be in town, was actually the edge of town in 1905, right? And they're the only house, this guy's, the only house on that road, that was the first house on that road where they built that. So I always kind of grew up looking at weird maps and stuff like that. I, I, I worked, in a, uh, worked in a place where we had just... I, we, we were an aerospace company, and so we had clients all over the world, customers all over the world. And so they had this giant map in this thing called the fax room. Makes me old. There's a room that you went into where they had the computers, and then they had these giant faxes to send things around. It was paper that curled. and oh, Anyways, well, the kids will explain it to you. Um, but, but they had this fax room, so they had this giant map so you could see where all the time zones were and everything. And I found out it was a Ming giant. It was like 15 feet by like 8 feet, big, huge map of the world. And really cool detail. And I learned things like, who here knows that there's a, an island country in the middle of the Atlantic called the Azores? Yeah, yeah, weird, right? Like it's a European, it's like a European country in the middle of the Atlantic called the Azor Islands where they had an airline there. Has anybody here ever heard of the Maldives? Yeah, did you know that it's the, that it's the, um, uh, the lowest country in the world? Highest point on the Maldives is 20 feet above sea level. 
Like one good wave, you know, head for the trees, right? And so I just would do stuff like that. So anyways, I was looking at stuff, and I want to talk about maps and how they relate to the gospel. Cool? So I have a PowerPoint presentation for you. Because that's not weird. Um, uh, so I have a PowerPoint presentation, and we're going to talk about maps, uh, and then how they kind of relate back to the gospel. Cool? So a lot of times when we see a map, what we first think of, we think of roads and bridges and boundaries. Like, what does the shape of Connecticut look like, and why does it have a tail, and why does it have a little notch, and, and here's the boundaries of it, right? And we think about things in terms of boundaries. Well, if you, if you turn that piece off, you can see a lot of other kinds of maps. And I'm going to show you some different kinds of maps that don't have boundaries. And it's really important for us to understand that, that boundaries are really kind of man-made, right? So cool? All right, so let's take a look at this first map. So here, an, this, is, this is an interesting map. This is a linguistic map of the United States. And they asked a simple question, what is your general term for rubber-soled shoes worn either in gym class or athletic activity? You can put that back up there. Um, the, uh, the blue in the upper right-hand corner, what do we call them? Sneakers. Do you know that most of the rest of the country calls them tennis shoes? And you're like, tennis shoes? You wear them for more than tennis. And they're like, sneakers? What, are you sneaking up on people? And actually, that's the reason why we call them sneakers, is because they, they're soft-soled shoes that don't make a lot of noise. And the reason why they call them tennis shoes elsewhere, uh, my, my dad uh, and mom are from western Pennsylvania, so right on that red line, and they call them tennis shoes as well. He's like, the only time we ever saw anybody wearing those kinds of shoes was playing tennis. And so we called them tennis shoes. I'm like, that's weird. And they're like, you're weird for calling them sneakers. But here's a map that you can see. It's just like part of the country does this. The Northeast does that. Everybody else does something else. Cool? You want to see another one? Here's another one. This is the use of how do you address a group of two or more people? And you can see the green down on the bottom there. That's y'all. Right? And everybody else in the red is you guys. So if someone says, hey, guys, in, in the Northeast, they don't mean I'm only addressing the men. They mean I'm addressing a group of two or more people. Of course, you can't really see the little part in New Jersey where they go, use guys, but that's that part. And then, and then it's a little washed out here, but in Nashville, Tennessee, they are actually very proper. They don't go, y'all. They go, you all. Weird. Hey, you all. Hey, you all. How are you all doing? We're in Memphis and in Knoxville. They're going, y'all. Y'all are weird in Nashville. Right? And I know we probably say y'all up here a, a little bit, right? You know, just because it kind of slides in nice and easy. But for the most part, we say you guys, right? Um, here's one that, that answers the question. People who put this up. This one here answers the question forever. How do you say pecan? Everybody goes, no, 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 it's not pecan, it's pecan. Well, actually, the red part of the country, which is most of this area over here, says pecan. And everybody in the northeast and weirdly in southern Florida says pecan. Except for this area, this area is a little washed out, this area in Texas, north Texas, and then down into Louisiana, which says pecan or pecan, not pecan, pecan. Weird, huh? You know what's weirder? Where do pecans come from? That blue area where the rest of the country apparently is wrong because that's where the pecan trees are, where they call them pecans. So I guess they're called pecans. But I will still say pecan. All right, so that's weird, right? So you can see here that, that oftentimes it doesn't even have boundaries. For example, you say pecan in the northeast in Washington, D.C., and in southern Florida, they all say pecan. Now, that might have to do with people moving, 
from Connecticut because we tax everything down to Florida? Who knows, but that's where they are. Okay, uh, here's another one, different thing. This is not a linguistic map of the United States. This is a map of how much snow it takes to usually cancel school. Now you kind of look at us and we're like, we're like, I don't believe that it's one to three, that it's three inches to cancel school here. Uh, yeah, we've seen them cancel it on like weather forecasts, right? But, um, but usually it's, it's generally about three inches to cancel school in that light blue area up there. But here's the interesting thing, is that there are parts of the country that they're like, any snow, and we're smoked. We're just done. We just sit here in our houses waiting for our friend, the sun, to come back. Right? But there are other parts of the country. Look at this. The dark blue. You know what the dark blue is? Two feet. Meaning if you've got a foot of snow and you're in, like, Wyoming, kids going to school. As a matter of fact, I have friends of mine. I have a friend of mine who lived in Calgary. A couple of years ago, it was really super cold. Uh, we had like this, what we called a cold snap, uh, where they actually, do you guys remember this? They canceled school because it was so cold. About two years ago, it was like minus eight, minus six, minus eight. You, you know what he said to me? He said, he goes, I don't understand you Americans. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm from Calgary. He said, you know what happens when it's minus eight in Calgary? I said, what? He said, they, um, they cancel recess at the elementary school. They don't, they don't put the kids outside. And, and he said, it's only because it takes too long to put their snowsuits on. He said they still go to school. It could be minus 10 degrees out. The kids still go to school. They just don't go outside for recess in the middle of the day. I'm like, and here we're all like huddled, like, please, please, you know, run the water, don't freeze the pipes, stuff like that, right? Uh, it's just a different world, but that's, that's interesting, right? So you can see that it's just different for different people, different cultures are like, snow, whatever, whatever, dude. Okay, here's another one. This is, uh, oh, this is coffee. This is coffee. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the way. This is coffee. Green is Starbucks. The fuchsia color, we'll call it fuchsia because I'm, I'm married and I'm comfortable with my masculinity. Fuchsia uh, is, is, is Dunkin' Donuts. And the blue, anybody know what the blue is? Anybody been to Minnesota know what the blue is? Caribou Coffee. If you, go to, if you go to Minnesota, there's a company called Caribou Coffee that started in Minnesota. And they are all over the place. You can't find a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks anywhere. Like, why would you do that? Minnesota, we have the best coffee. We're like, in Minnesota, you have the best coffee. Okay, fine. But that's coffee drinking in the United States. So you can see that a lot of times there are different ways of looking at things. That cross boundaries that, that aren't necessarily in boxes. Is that cool? So let's take a look at a different map, will we? Here's a different map. This is a relational map. Now, I made this map, and we're just going to talk about this. This is a, an example of a relational map. Now, uh, the guy that's the kind of bright lime green in the middle, we'll call him Bob. And what you see there is th that the, you have these concentric circles. See that? And the circles represent levels of intimacy or closeness in relationship. What I mean by that is the people at the center of the circle would be considered intimate relationships. In this case, Bob is married and he's got a couple of really best friends, friends who would do anything for him, friends who would lay their life down for him. Maybe we're in the military with him or maybe grew up with him or something like that. We talked about this in youth group last night, that uh, these are the people that if you were found yourself in Boston in a bad area, maybe Dorchester, right, uh, uh, in a bad area of Boston at 2 o'clock in the morning and you didn't have any money and you didn't have a car and it was in a bad section, you had 1% on your on your phone and you have one call to make and the only thing you could say is can you come get me in Boston and the person would say I'm on my way and hang up the phone do you have a friend like that and reality is if we have maybe two or three friends like that in our entire life you're we're fortunate right we might have close friends but we might have to be like 
you want me to drive two hours in the middle of the night just to get you, no questions asked? You might have a friend like that, right? They might ask questions later, but there you have it. So that's the middle part. Then you have close friends. These are people that you hang out with, people that you pray with, people that are, are in your life group, things like that, people that you really know, and they know you, and you can influence their life, and they can influence yours. The next one out is what was called casual friends. These are people maybe that you met at work, or you met at the gym, or you met someplace else, and now your relationship has progressed beyond the circumstances that gave you that relationship in the first place. So let me back that up for a second. If you have a friend who was in your math class, and the only reason you knew them was because they were in your math class, but now you're hanging out with them outside of math class, they would be in that other circle. If you had a friend that you met at work or something like that, and it was cool, but now you're going out to dinner with them, they've crossed that line. Does that make sense? And then the last group of people, lots and lots of people, they all look small because I needed to fit them in. Uh, so I made them smaller, not just because they're small people. But the last people that are out there are acquaintances. These are people that are in our lives, and we might even be friendly with them, but the reality is that the only reason they're in our lives is because of the circumstances, right? Uh, they're in my math class. They go to my gym. Uh, they are, in my case, I do martial arts. They're in my martial arts class, or they're, um, they're, they're, I work with them or something like that. But the reality is... And we know this, and the older we get, the more it becomes real to us, is that we know this, is that if those circumstances changed, they would move out of your life and they wouldn't be your friend anymore, right? This is the reason why uh, it's such a shock to young people. You've been in youth ministry for a couple of decades. This is the reason why it's such a shock to young people. They're in high school, and they're like, I have so many friends. And you're like, no, you don't. You have so many acquaintances. I asked uh, one of our... um, one of the people who helps us out, Ashley, who helps us out in, in youth ministry, and she's the same age as my daughter, Michelle. So gonna, can I ask you, Michelle? Okay, I'm going to ask Michelle, my daughter. Same age as four years out of high school, right? Five years, five years out of high school. Okay, how many, how many people from high school are you still even in contact with? Well, yeah, because it counted for Ashley, too. <laughs> Two. Maybe three. Ashley was like, does Michaela count? Weirdly. And, uh, and, uh, and she goes, one. And like, that was it. Two. She goes, one, maybe two. Like, that was it. Is that weird for us adults? They were like, yeah, no, that, that's not weird for us. But for kids, they're like, shock. Oh, my goodness. Right? Okay. So, but that's cool. Is that cool as you guys get that map? Okay, so let me explain this map. I'm going to go to this next slide. We're just going to remove this so we can see this a little bit easier, right? All this is is this is a relationship uh, circle, and this relationship circle In the Greek New Testament, the word for this would be oikos. We're going to talk about that word today. The word would be oikos. Oikos means your household. Oikos is not that Greek yogurt, right? Uh, Oikos means household or friendship. And what it means, the concept of a household in in Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, or, or Middle Eastern culture, the concept of a household was not the people that live in my house or my immediate family. The concept of a household is my immediate, the people who live in my home, my immediate family, and everyone that I have a relationship with. So my friends, my coworkers, the Old Testament stuff, servants, and things like this, masters, it would be all of those people, everybody. This would be called your sphere of influence. These are people that, with varying degrees, the further they get out to that line, the less influence they have on your life, the less influence you have on theirs. The closer they get in, the more influence, the le- more influence you have on theirs, the more influence they have on yours. Cool? 
That's the concept of what's called an oikos or a household. That's the biblical idea. Whenever you see this in the New Testament, it says your household. That's what he's talking about. Cool? Now, if we pull this map back just a little bit, we can see something else here. So, so we pull this back a little bit. That it's not just, it's not just Bob's household, but, uh, but, it's, but it's Bill's household over here too, right? So these two households. And you can see that Bill, Bill's not married, and Bill may have a few more married couples in, in, his, in his oikos than Bob does, and that's probably because I was copying and pasting people. And, um, and, and so I made this up. And so, but you see it's different, right? Different group, different thing, and it's a different thing right there. See that? So different people, as you pull this back, you've got your household, I've got my household. But there's something interesting that we might not, be, we might not see, and Bill and Bob might not even know it. But there's a guy in there that they have in common. Let's go to this next slide. See, there's a, oh, you made this slide bigger. That's awesome. Um, this guy, this giant guy, they should probably know. Um, Andre, we'll call him, the giant. Um, this guy here, they have in common. And so when we look at that and we arrange the, this together, to go to the next slide, we arrange this together, you actually have this really cool Venn diagram, which makes me even more of a geek. Um, but you have this really cool Venn diagram, or the intersection between these two spheres of influence is that one person, Andre. Now, if you think about it, Bob might not even know Bill. And Bob looks like he's not even connected to anybody else in Bill's sphere of influence. But he is through Andre. Did you guys know? Have you guys, who's here ever played the six degrees of Kevin Bacon? Yeah? Okay. Who here even knows who Kevin Bacon is? Okay. Kevin Bacon is an actor, and he was basically in, like, every movie that's ever existed. He'll pop up all over. He'll pop up in military movies. He was in a dancing movie called Footloose. He, he's singing. He's dancing. He's, he's, he's a bad guy. He's a good guy. He's in comedy movies. Anyways, he's acted all over the place. And the joke is that if you know Kevin Bacon, you know everybody. That's, that's because he's connected to everybody. Okay. It's based on a concept that is true. There are six and a half billion people in this world, and you are connected to every other person on the planet by six degrees of separation. Meaning, you know somebody who knows 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 the last person on the planet that you didn't think you could ever know, like some dude in Sri Lanka. And you're like, oh, how could that possibly work? You want to play it? Okay, here we go. Ronald Reagan. Who here knows Ronald Reagan? You know Ronald Reagan? You, you know of him. No, I mean, like, who knows Ronald Reagan? Anybody here know Ronald Reagan? Okay, you guys are separated. Do you know me? Yes. You guys are separated from Ronald Reagan by, by three degrees of separation. Ready? Actually, two, de- two degrees of separation. I know the former governor of Connecticut, John Rowland. Met him, talked with him, things like that. But he was governor in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president, and they knew each other. So I know John Rowland. John Rowland knows Ronald Reagan. Voila. You want to hear another one? Donald Trump. Who here knows Donald Trump? You know him? Excellent. Now, see, that's easy. You know him? Cool. I've never met the man. I've never met Donald Trump. However... I actually was in a, a part of my business. We were doing business with the Trump Organization. Never met Donald, but I've met Eric and I've met Ivanka. So if you know me, you know me. I know Eric. Eric knows his dad. 
voila, or you could just meet this guy over here who's apparently <laughs> friends with the Don himself. All right. Um, so see how that works? And by the way, you could do something like this. Who here knows uh, the French President Macron? And yet, he knows Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, met President Macron. May or may not have liked him, but he met him, right? Uh, but he met President Macron. So, so you know, all of a sudden, we're, we're all of a sudden, in two degrees, we're over in France. See how this works? And it's a cool thing. To, it's, cool, it's a cool game to play. You throw these things down. You're like, I know this guy. Who knows this guy? Who knows this guy? It's the whole thing. I know a guy. Right? Okay, cool. All right. That's how this works. Now, I want, to put, I want to think about this from the standpoint of being horizontal in our relationships with God. Let's pretend that Bill is a Christian. And Bill tells Andre about Jesus. And Andre becomes a Christian. The gospel is now open to everyone in Bob's circle of influence. See how that works? Now, Andre could go and tell Bob about it, and Bob could tell all his friends about Jesus. Or Andre could bring Bill, and Bill could tell, and he could introduce him around, and he could be like an evangelist inside of that map without ever leaving the place where they say y'all. Does that make sense? So now, if you pull this back further and you look at relationship maps instead of geographic maps or linguistic maps or something like that, and you pull this back, it might look like this. Andre's still huge because he's a giant. But it might look like this. And if you guys are looking and, and seeing if I made all different circles, I did not. I just copy-pasted. Okay, so they all look the same. All right, it's like a bad movie where you see all the extras in the background. Okay, but here's how this works. It might look like this. Like this is, this is beginning to look like maybe even the group of people in here. Not even quite because it's not as many circles. But would you agree that we each have a sphere of influence and that they intersect at some point? Oh, oh, your teacher did this. Okay, so let me stop for a second before I get to this next slide. And I want to ask this question. How do we get there? How does our sphere of influence get get us there? And it's a really important question because I want to get to the next slide and then get off of this and see what this looks like. Okay? But I want to show you how I believe God views the world. Just an example of how I believe God views the world. Cool? Next slide. I don't mean that it's from a satellite image, which is what this is. But if you were to look at those interlocking relationships and circles of relationships and just start to pull back what you would see, does God care about nations and countries? Absolutely. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that he sees beyond it. And what he sees is, is webs and interconnecting webs of relationships that cover the entire planet. This is his plan for redemption. It's you and I. And this is how he accomplishes evangelism. This is how the ultimate horizontal relationship happens. It's through a web of relationships that go and stretch beyond any borders, beyond how people say y'all, or beyond what coffee you're drinking, or beyond how many inches of snow, or beyond any of those things, beyond language barriers and stuff like that. Cool? So let's talk about this. We're going to talk about two. Um, we're going to talk about two words today. Uh, evangelion. I'm pretty sure I'm saying it incorrectly, but evangelion is a Greek word, and oikos is the other Greek word. Now, the first Greek word, uh, oikos, we already talked about, and that is how you have a sphere of influence. And now I want you to just think about this as we go through today. 
what makes part uh, what makes up part of your sphere of influence is not your you're saying. It's your family, right? We get to choose our friends, but not our family, right? And so the family that you're born into is not a choice, and that's part of your sphere of influence, right? However, did you know that what family you get put into is a result of the choices and things like that and decisions that your parents have made, right? Whether or not they are upper class or lower class or live in Connecticut or live in South Carolina or live in Florida, something like that. Where they live, what they do, the jobs they have, that starts to shape your life, right? If your dad was a hunter, you're probably a hunter. If your dad wasn't a hunter, you may not be a hunter. If your dad was into, into sports, you might be into sports. I'll give you a prime example. Just look at Pastor Ron and myself. If you say sports to Pastor Ron or, 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 or sport to Pastor Ron, he thinks hunting, fishing, hiking, things like that, right? If you say that to me, uh, it's, it's, it's actual sports that are played either on a field or, you know, it's things like that. It's just how we think. It's, neither of them are wrong. It's just how we were brought up. But how we were brought up influences those other choices. Make sense? Now, the other thing that happens is whether or not you are gifted or talented in math might make you a computer programmer, and you get a job as a computer programmer. True? Or maybe you're a doctor. Don't you think that if, you, if, you just, if, you're, if you're gifted and talented that way and you become a doctor, that that determines, that determines the car you drive, that determines the house you buy, that determines where you live, that determines where you work. True? Where if, you, where if you're a person who's more attuned to working with your hands and you become a machinist, that determines the house you drive, the, the, the house you uh, uh, by that determines the car you drive, that determines where you work, that determines the people that are around you. True? And I've been in both of those. I've been in a shop where everybody had their snap-on toolkits tool out, and I know the types of people that work there, because I work there. And, I've, and I then went over and got, got, a, got, a, got a different job as an engineer in the same company, and all of a sudden, the people were different, and they lived in different houses and things like that, and my sphere of influence changed. Your, your interests, like, for example, you heard that I do, I do martial arts. There are people that I know that you don't know because I've never seen you in my martial arts studio, right? But if you were there, we would share the same, we would share the same sphere of influence. But if, we, if you're not there, then there's people that I know that you don't. By the way, there's probably people that you know that I don't. I can guarantee it. Don't you think that that could be strategically done by God? Just a thought. Just a thought that maybe God isn't the person who's behind, not even, I said, all the gifts and talents, but maybe there's other things that have happened in your life. Maybe it's an injury or the, the death of a spouse or a child or, 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 or something else tragic that's happened. Maybe your company shut down and that determines and, and you're out of a job for six months. I know a guy whose house burned down and, and, and that, that meant he was, out of, he was actually out of work with all of the stress and all of the things that went down. He wound up losing his job over it and being out of work for a year and a half because his house burned down. Sounds tragic, but you know what it did? It changed who he hung out with. True? So don't you think that it's possible that even though God might not be behind the tragedy in your life, that he could possibly use the difficulties and tragedies and other things in your life to shape you, to put you into this particular place that you can meet Andre? Possible. And the purpose of doing that would be for the second word, which is evangelion. Now let me tell you what the word means first in Greek culture and, and language, and then we're going to get into it. Cool? All right. And, and I'll only talk faster once we start doing this. 
Now, evangelion literally means a reward for bringing good news. It could mean the good news message itself, or it could also mean the messenger. They're all kind of interchanged. The guy named Vines, who, is a, um, who, who wrote a Greek dictionary, says this. The original classic definition of the noun evangelion was a reward for bringing a good message. But the, all, the term also stood for the message itself. It became a general term for the triumphant message from the battlefield. And it was used for the joyous proclamation also for personal uh, messages and for good news. But it became, listen to this, the general term was used for the triumphant message for the bat, from a battlefield. So if your country or your city-state or whatever was being attacked, was that a bad thing? Yeah, because what would happen if you lost? If, if, if your king went out with the army and you, guys, and, you, and you hung back because you're old, you're a child, you're a woman, whatever it is, and you're back in the city and, and your army loses, how bad of news is that? That's super bad. Because what would happen is that that, uh, that conquering army would come in, they would take all of, the, all of the boys over a certain age and kill them. They would take all of the old men and kill them in front of everybody. They would take the, they would take the older women, kill them. They would take the, the, the younger women and rape them until they died, take the young girls as sex slaves and the young boys as slaves back to their land. Everybody was, was being devastated. So losing a battle, bad thing. So how good of a news would it be to, find, to have somebody come running back from the battle going, we won. Tremendous news. Tremendous news. As a matter of fact, who here knows why a marathon is called a marathon? And why it's 26.2 miles? Here's another thing about me. I have no weird facts. Okay, it's 26.2 miles from Marathon, Greece to Athens, Greece. And there was a battle in Marathon, and the Greeks were expected to lose that battle. I believe it was against the Persians. I may be wrong about that, but they were expected to lose the battle, and yet they won. And there was a guy who ran from the battle, and he ran 26.2 miles, which is why we commemorate that. And he ran from the battle back to the capital and said, we won. And, but he ran, and he did this, and legend has it that he died after he said, we won. And they commemorate his life by running that race back and forth to remember that what he had done was he brought the good news from the battle. Well, let me tell you something. The most important battle in the history of humanity has been won, and that's Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's the the reason why the evangelion, the message of the good news, is called the gospel. That's where we get that word, the gospel, is from this word. It means the good news that a battle has been won on our behalf. Cool. It says the messenger, now here's the interesting thing. The technical term literally means news of a victory. Now the messenger would appear, and he would raise his right hand in greeting, and would call out with a loud voice so that everyone could hear, and he would say these two words, cher, chare, which is bad Greek, but it means grace, and nikoam, or nike, or nike, which means victory. That's what the word nike means, right? It means victory. He would say, hello, grace to you. There's been a victory. He says, however, his appearance, by his appearance, it would already be known that he would bring good news. His face would be shining. His spear would be decked with a laurel. His head would be crowned. He would swing a branch of palms, which is a sign of victory. Joy would fill the city. Offerings would be made, because oftentimes these guys were pagans. Offerings would be made, specific victories. 
victory offerings would be made. The temples would be garland. Uh, a, a, a feast would be held. And crowns would be put on uh, people's heads for sacrifices. And to the one who brought the message, they would be honored with a wreath. And here was what would happen. This guy would come running back from the battle. They would go, hey, we won, we won. There was actually a separate Greek word if they ran back and said we lost. So they would know that. But this Greek word said, we won, we won. It wasn't just news from the battle. It was news of victory from the battle. And they would have this giant party. They would get ready. And you know what they would get ready for? The coming of the king. Because the king would then come. And there would be this huge victory parade into the city. Where the king would return and everybody would be thankful for the victory that the king and his army had won over the enemy. Sound familiar? It should. Jesus was the first evangelion. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Talking about Jesus, says, He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up and read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This is what he said from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal. That word preach is evangelion. To bring a, new, a word of victory to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And to proclaim an acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. Gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes And the eyes of all of them who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was saying, today, I bring victory. You might be saying, hmm, he hadn't yet died on the cross. Where where was the victory? You're talking to a guy who exists outside of time. He's like, it's already done. I haven't done it yet, but it's as good as done. It's happening. I brought victory, freedom, healing. An acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus was the first evangelion. Let me talk about oikos so that we can understand and give you just one example of, of, uh, of an oikos. I'll give you two examples real quickly. One example is, um, actually let's skip that for, for the sake of time. We're going to go right to Acts chapter 16. I'll just tell you that in Acts chapter 10, it talks about Cornelius. When Cornelius uh, gathered his whole household together for, to hear Peter, that was the first time any any Gentiles had heard the gospel. The first time any Gentiles heard the gospel. And Cornelius gathered his whole household. It says, I've gathered my friends and my family together to hear the word of God. And that was the opening of the gospel. It wasn't to Cornelius, it was to Cornelius. And he gathered his entire sphere of influence together. By the way, what happened when, when, when the gospel came to Cornelius' household is that Peter stayed there for several days and made sure that everybody knew. This is what should happen with evangelism. When we find somebody, uh, one of, somebody in our life and they become a Christian, God works circumstances so that it opens our eyes for their need for Christ. And then, and then we're able to tell them about Jesus. They become a Christian. We should walk through their entire sphere of influence to see what else God has been doing because God is always at work in people's lives. But I want to show you something here. It's interesting. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. This is Paul and Silas. Now, Paul and Silas are on a missionary trip to, uh, to Philippi. I'm going to get this wrong. I believe Philippi is in modern-day Syria, but it might be Turkey, and I may be wrong about that, but it's kind of right over in that area. I think Syria might be Turkey. Um, but it says, 
at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Anybody know why they were in prison? They were in prison for preaching the gospel. And Paul, being a Roman citizen, hadn't received due process, but he didn't complain. They just put him in prison. First, before they put him in prison, they beat him. And then it says that they put him in the lowest lower levels of the, of the prison. And just so that we can understand it without going into all of the details, um, we talked about this a little bit in youth group last night, right? But, but just so we can understand without going into all the details, the lowest levels of the prison, they would have beat them until there were open wounds on their backs and legs and then chained them to the floor of the sewer. So the way that it worked is they changed it to the floor and it was all sloped down so all of the other cells, whenever they pooped or peed or threw up, it ran down, they washed it down, it would run down into this, into this vat that would then go out into the open sewer. So it basically put them in the sewer. I want us to remember that because it's super important because sometimes we look at the circumstances of our own life and go, oh, poor me, right? But Paul and Silas, what they were doing, were they preaching? Were they telling? No, they were showing. They were showing that Jesus had made a difference in their life. They're showing, listen, you guys could literally poop on us and we're still going to sing. Think about that. Think about that for a second. You could beat us and put us at the bottom of the toilet and we're still going to sing. See how they saw their circumstances? They didn't see their circumstances as something that affected them personally. That's a huge deal because when it comes to showing and telling, it's not just that telling part of the gospel. It's the showing part of the gospel. And the showing part of the gospel isn't in uh, what music you listen to or don't listen to or, or do you have a tattoo or not. Pfft, whatever. It's way more about is the, is the kingdom of God alive in your life? By the way, I don't have a tattoo. Okay? Just so you know. Um, but I don't care if you do unless it's on your face. All right. Yeah, on your face. All right, so here it says, At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, a weirdly specific kind of earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, good supposition, Drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because he was about to be killed because he was the jailer. And if the prisoners escaped, he would be killed. So he's like, instead of the torture I'm going to go through, I'll kill myself. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. We're all here. It's just that all the doors have opened and our chains have fallen off. And even though we're still in poop, we've decided that that's not the biggest thing. That the real biggest thing is that Jesus is here because he's shaking the foundations and let us know that freedom actually exists in spite of our circumstances. And you don't have to kill yourself. That's just my interpretation of what he said here. It says, then he called for a light. This is the man. Calls for a light, ran in to the sewer, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's a person who suddenly God turned the lights on in his life. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this is, this is what... Paul said. He didn't say he had to do anything. You don't have to crawl on your knees up concrete steps. You don't have to do this thing. You don't have to you know, pay alms to the poor. You don't have to do anything. This is what he said very simply. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then he says this. You and your household. You and your entire house. Salvation. Now does that mean that every single person in the sphere of influence of the Philippian jailer would come to Christ? No. But every single person in the sphere of influence of the Philippian jailer was about to hear about Jesus. And salvation would come to his household. And anybody 
who, who wanted it could have it. I would imagine that there were more than just the Philippian jailer who became Christians that night. So that's what it means to have an oikos, is that we should look at this and say, the circumstances of our life are, are way less important than what Jesus has done. And when I understand what freedom is, I should want those closest to me to, un, to, to believe it, right? And, and, to, and, and to receive that gift as well. And that's what that horizontal piece is. And it comes from showing and telling. So let's talk about salvation. I'm going to give in, in, in about 10 minutes. We're going to go to about 20 after. In about 10 minutes, we're going to talk about the gospel so that we can understand it, what we're, what we're really talking about. And then in the last couple of minutes, I'm going to give you some things that have helped me as a non-evangelist to be an evangelist. So first of all, we need to understand, if we're going to understand the victory, we need to understand the threat or the bad news, right? Because it wouldn't be a real victory um, in battle if we, didn't, if we thought that they couldn't do anything with us, whether or not, it didn't matter if we won or lost. But to that nation state, when the king went out, to lose that battle meant your death or, or your slavery. To win was a big deal, right? So we need to understand what the stakes are. So let's talk about what I'll call, instead of the good news, let's talk about what the bad news is. Or let's talk about how big of a mess people can make for themselves, including me. Cool? All right. First things first. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Really simple. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me, that's every person who's ever existed. All have sinned. Let's define what sin is. Because sin is not a mistake. Don't say, oh, well, I'm only human. People make mistakes. Yeah, no. Two plus two is five. That's a mistake. Hey, everybody here know the, uh, the, the Mars rover that's, that they've got, that they landed this thing on Mars? And now they, they've got a cool helicopter. They've got stuff they're, they're going around exploring Mars. Anybody know what happened to the first time they tried to do this? They biffed it right into the planet. They flew it. They went, they went oh, too fast. <laughs> and millions of dollars of parts just went all over Mars. You know how that happened? Turns out that it was a team of scientists in Europe that were helping with it. And then they were and making the calculations. There was a team of scientists in America that were building the rocket. And they didn't realize that those guys were using the metric system and we weren't. And they didn't convert the calculations, so they didn't hit the brakes at the right time. And they went, Wah! and took, a, took an entire spaceship and just plowed it into Mars. And if there were any Martians, they'd be like, whoa, cool. Right? But, but you know, like, what was, the, what was that sound? I don't know. Now we just have free parts. Okay, so that's what happened. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a mistake. A bad one, but a mistake. Right? Being, 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 uh, being allergic to shellfish and going, oh, this shrimp probably won't hurt me. That's a mistake, right? Those things are mistakes, right? That, that kind of thing is a mistake. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is one of two things. Sin is a direct transgression. I know the thing I shouldn't do. I know the thing I'm supposed to do. And I go, mm, I'm going to do my own way anyways. But ultimately, let me give you the big thing for what sin is. Whenever we have a choice of God, ready? Not Satan, not evil. God, not God. Even if the not God choice is, yeah, it feels like God wants me to do this, but, but I don't think that, who's making the decision? Even if it's the decision between God and my own self-directed life. 
Anything that is God or not God is a sin. Now, I know we can categorize them. We put names to them and things like this. And we can say, you know, right, we know that if you lie, that's a sin. If you've ever lied in your entire life, that's a sin. If you kill someone, you cheat on your husband or your wife, if you have sex outside of marriage, if you steal something, right, those are all sins. But I'm telling you, in a much broader sense, anytime we have the choice of God or anything other than God, and we choose the anything other than God, that's sin. And every one of us has done it. You, me, every person on the face of the earth has done it. That's one. So everyone's sin. Two, we earn something by our sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages, what we earn, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We die spiritually. We are separated from God because of, of our spiritual death. And ultimately, we die a physical death because of sin. So everyone's sin, first comes sin, then comes death. Do you feel the hole that we're digging for ourselves? Because Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed to man once to die, but after this the judgment. Sin, death, judgment. Where we will be judged for everything we've ever done, in secret or in public, and we'll be judged for the reason and the motivation behind the things we've done. Even the good things that we did for bad reasons, for not God reasons, become sin, and we're judged for them. And I will tell you that if we live a life that is separated from God, and we die a death that is separated from God, we will spend an eternity that is separated from God. That's what hell is. Sin, death, judgment, hell. It's a mighty big hole that we've dug for ourselves. And some people say, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm not like fill-in serial killer name here, right? I'm not that bad. I've done good things as if to a God that exists outside of time, you would think that you could do something good today that would make up for something bad that you've done yesterday and that would somehow affect the God that exists outside of time. And so, okay, that makes up for it. But even to those of us who say that we could, as long as we're more good than bad, that that makes it right with God. First of all, who said that? You or God? Because God doesn't say that. We say that, and that's a not God thing. We're saying, I'll make myself right with God by my own measures. Listen to what Romans chapter 3 says before it said all have sinned in Romans 3.23. In verse 10 it says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. And with their tongues they have practiced deceit. And the poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Whose feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in the, before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world become guilty before God. And therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is simply the knowledge of sin. So we dig a hole, an eternal hole for ourselves that we can't get out of. It's way worse than swimming within an hour after you eat. Right? 
It's way worse. We dig ourselves an eternal hole by every choice we make that is not God. We dig ourselves an eternal hole that we cannot get ourselves out of. And that's our need for a savior. That is the battle that we're in. And we're losing. So here's the good news. You guys want some good news now? Good news would be nice. Romans 6.23 where I said the wages of sin is death. It says, but, best word in the entire Bible. (laughs) You, Joe, you have royally screwed up your eternal destiny. But, God loves you more than you can know. But the gift of God, the undeserved gift, the unearned gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where it says, no flesh, by the deeds of the law, no flesh can be justified. So we can't work our way back, but God can give us a gift that is unearned, that has no price to it, that the only thing you can say when you get a gift, do you, when somebody gives you a gift, do you pull out your wallet and go, oh, wow, that looks like a good pair of pants you bought me. How much do I owe you? Do you do that? No. A, it would be offensive. B, they would have just been shopping for you. Right? But if somebody gives you a gift, what do you say? Thank you. Because there's nothing I can do. Because otherwise it wouldn't be a gift. A gift is not free. It's just free to you. True? Same thing with salvation. God makes salvation available through his power, and therefore he makes it a gift to us. To us, who have thumbed our noses at God, who have gone our own way, who have decided we're going to do our own not-God thing. And gotten ourselves in a hole underneath the thumb of Satan and and eternally separated from God. God says, I've got a remedy for that. And it's Jesus Christ our Lord. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says this. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is what Pastor Ron preached on last week. He says, he has made made you alive together with him. Having forgiven all of your trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements which was against us, which was contrary to us, and have taken it away and nailed it to the cross. You know what this says? It says that in every person's life, there's a court indictment. There is an arrest warrant with a list of our crimes written on it. Every single one of us has has this court indictment, has this file case against us. And God says, guess what I did with that? Guess what I did with it, with the record of everything you've ever done wrong? Guess what I did with it? When Jesus, before he was nailed to the cross, when Jesus, before he was nailed to the cross, he took that and he nailed your arrest warrant to the cross. So that when he sat on the cross and he was lifted up, that the blood that flowed out from him ran over top of it, obscured it, obliterated it, and made it so that you can never, it can never come back again. That's what that says. It says that on the cross... On the cross, your sentence and my sentence was obliterated in the blood of Christ. That's what that says. Not only that, he then says this. He says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You know what that is? That's the return of the king. That is the language. So the first language is the evangelion. The battle's been won. The second part, what I said would happen, is everybody would have to throw a party. They'd put on their best stuff and then wait. Because the return of the king meant the return of a triumphal, military, conquering king. That's that language right there. That before the entire universe, Jesus takes Satan as, 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 as the defeated foe before the entire universe and says, guess what? This is the reason why in Revelation, when, when Jesus shows up to John, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the one who is dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And guess what I've got? I have the keys of death and hell. 
the very thing that was meant to, to be judgment on you, I've got him. Because I took him from Satan. Because he's a toothless dog and nothing more. And Jesus says, I'm the conquering king. I'm the conquering hero. He is not only the evangelist in, in, in the beginning of the gospel, he is the returning conquering king. And one day he will return for us. And we will see. But right now the battle has already been won. Jesus has erased our criminal record on the cross. He has destroyed sin and therefore death. And he's taken back the usurpation of, of Satan and restored the availability of the kingdom of God here on earth. I'm going to give you some more good news. and We're going to, we're going to skip over to John, 1 John chapter 2 for the sake of time because we'll come back to Romans 10. I want to give you some more good news. These are some things that I remember, okay? Because really, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a really good evangelist. I care a lot about what other people say. I worry, about, I worry about people punching me in the face. I worry about, you know, stuff like that. So I make a list of the things that are required for telling my friends and family about Jesus. And what's required when it comes to, when it comes to salvation? What is my responsibility? Because it feels like a really heavy responsibility. And it's not. You ready? First, First John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the, also for the whole world. Do you guys know what that means? Favorite word in the entire Bible, propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice that satisfies justice, allowing the person to be declared innocent. Not, not guilty, not pardoned, but innocent as if I'd never done it in the first place. Not only that, for my sins, but the sins of the entire world. Do you know what that means? Listen, listen, do you know what that means? That means that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just my arrest warrant. It wasn't just your arrest warrant. It was every arrest warrant. It was every sentencing document for every person who would ever live. That means that right now, as we sit here, salvation has already been purchased. Forgiveness has already been made for every person who has ever existed and who will ever live. It's as if there is a giant safety deposit box. There's a giant vault in heaven. And there's a safety deposit box with freedom and a new life for every person. They just don't know it. The gift is already there. You were forgiven, you were forgiven before you ever asked. Did you know that? It wasn't applied to you, it didn't count to you, but the gift had already been made. When Jesus died, he died for the sins of the whole world. He made salvation ready for the sins of everyone. Everyone's already been forgiven, they just don't know it. And unless they ask for it, they'll never get it. But that's all they need to do. Cool thing, huh? So do I need to... Conjure something up between God and man. Go, God, please forgive him. Please, please make that right. God's like, well, don't you remember the cross thing? Kind of already said it's finished. It's already done. I just have to go get it and bring it out. Blow some dust off it. There you go. First, one, everyone's already been forgiven. Two, this is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Huh. Who has to convict a person of their sin? Me? Do I have to convince a person that living with their girlfriend is wrong? That's not my job. Now, I might point it out. 
The same way that I pointed out some specific sins before, and I would imagine that when I said something before, like lying, stealing, um, cheating on your husband or wife, that, those kinds of things like that, hating somebody in your heart, stuff like that is a sin, that if any of those things exist in your life, you started thinking about them. Because you know what? That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts a person. So every person has already been forgiven. Every person right now is already being convicted of their sins. Every single person, even people that say they don't believe sin, they're already being convicted of their sins. That's a cool thing. I don't have to do that. So, so far, my list of things I have to do when it comes to salvation is getting shorter, which is good. Then Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 3, he says, If I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. That means that Jesus said, once I'm crucified, I will draw everyone to myself. That means that everyone on this planet, everyone on this planet, from all the people you know to, um, to, to, uh, to, to Vladimir Putin to whoever, name the person that you think is the farthest away from, 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 from Jesus Christ, right? Every single person is currently being drawn to Jesus, Every single person, God works circumstances in their life to try to get a hold of them. Sometimes he's, he's tapping them on the shoulder. Sometimes he's giving a gift. Sometimes he's hitting them in the head with a two-by-four. But every single person is being drawn currently, right now, to Jesus. Every single person is therefore being convicted of their sin right now. And every single person right now, right now, right this very second, as we sit here, right now, people are being drawn to Jesus. Unless you don't believe Jesus is true and he was a liar, in which case, I'll... I'll not stand near you. All right. So then, last two verses. Romans chapter 10. Listen to how easy this is. Listen to how easy salvation is. He says, what does he say? This is 10 verses 8. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith. God gives faith. Enough faith to believe on Jesus for salvation to every single person on the planet. So not only is he made way of salvation by forgiving their sins, then not only is he then convicting them of their sins, not only is he then uh, calling them to them, he actually gives them enough faith to believe. Every person on the planet has enough faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And not only that, he says, I'm actually going to put the words like on the tip of your tongue, like, like, like the actor that starred next to Doogie Howser, and you're like, oh, who is that? Who is that? It's on the tip of my tongue. You can't remember it, right? And you have to Google it. He says, the words are on the tip of your tongue. That's what this is saying. He's saying, the word of confession I've actually put in everyone's mouth. God's like, how much more can I do? I can't make you say it. That's a choice of your will. But I've done everything right up to this point. By the way, so far, how much have I done as an evangelist? I've done none of this. Listen to this. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made for salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between the Jew or the Greek. For the same Lord, the same, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's literally accomplished already. All we have to do is say yes. So then what's my part in being an evangelion? What's my part in evangelism? 
What's my part? You know what my part is? Showing and telling. That's it. Am I responsible even for your response? No. What if you say, get out of here? What if you pull a knife out of me? What if you punch me in the face? Am I responsible for that? No. Am I responsible if you say no? If you ridicule me? If you cancel me? If you try to get me fired from my... Am I responsible for any of that? No. I'm simply responsible to say a victory has been won on your behalf. A victory has been won. A great victory. The greatest victory in the history of the world has been won. Would you like to hear about it? That's all I'm responsible for. And then I'm responsible to show it. Right? Romans 14 says this. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking or rules and regulations, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If God has saved you from your sins, then a sense of being right with God should change our perspective on the circumstances of our life. So much so that peace is this primary thing that rules our heart. That when when bad things happen in our life, that others look at it and say, why is it that you're not moved by that? And we can say, look, just like Paul, look, the entire world feels like I'm in a dungeon, been beaten, and I'm currently getting pooped on. But that doesn't change who Jesus is. Fill in those circumstances how you will in your own life. My job, my kids, my family, my health, my future, my money, whatever that is. Whatever bad circumstance in our life, don't you think it might be possible that God brought that bad circumstance in or allowed that circumstance so that others could see, others who are around you could see how you respond? And when they see how you respond, they go, whoa, that's different. Because I would be angry and bitter, and you're not. You're singing. Because you have the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's the show part. And it shouldn't be fake, because if it's fake, everyone will know. My thing is, do we really understand what God has done for us? If we do, then, then our circumstances become, quite frankly, not that important. The last thing is this. Mark chapter 16. Verse 15. I'll just finish with verse 15. Jesus said, go into all the world. As a matter of fact, the way, a different way of thinking about that is as you go. As you go to your job. As you go on vacation, maybe you go on a mission trip, maybe you become a missionary, great. But if you don't, as you go, as you go about your daily life, as you go to the store, as you go to, to, to the gym, as you go to your work, as you go to school, as you go to down the neighborhood, as you go, preach evangelon. Preach the gospel to every creature. Tell everybody about the victory that's been won for them. Tell everyone about the victory that's been won with our actions and with our words. It's time for us to open up our eyes, look around and see that it is not just possible, but it is probable that God has created the circumstances of our life to put you exactly where you're supposed to be. Exactly when you're supposed to be. Exactly how you're supposed to be so that you have people in your life who are already, have already been forgiven, just don't know it but are already being convicted of their sins, don't know what to do about it, already feeling called to Jesus, just don't know how to make it happen. And you and I become the key to this amazing horizontal relationship suddenly going vertical with people to God. So we're going to pray. The first thing I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm, I would be totally remiss if, if we talked about um, this amazing thing that God has done. And you may be here, you may be listening to me online or whatever, and do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Do have not experienced this. 
And maybe for you, this would be the first time. So here's what we're going to do. First, I'm going to pray. Then we're going to pray together. I'm going to ask that if you're here and you're a Christian, that you'd reaffirm your faith in Christ. And if this is new for you, um, and you say, yeah, that's me, that maybe for the very first time you pray along with us, just like it says in Romans, in Romans uh, uh, 10. All right, so first thing I'm going to pray for us. Father, I just ask, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would do the things you said you would, that you convict of sin, of righteousness, and of the coming judgment, and you'd help us to see that your plan for us is not to face judgment, but to pass from death to life. And Lord, that you would embolden and empower us to live in a way and speak in a way that tells of your victory. Now, if you would pray with me to reaffirm your faith or to put your faith in Jesus for the very first time, say, dear God, you know my sins and that I'm a sinner. And I cannot change that on my own. But I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. That he died in my place. I believe Jesus rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven. Please forgive me and grant me eternal life. All that I am, all I ever will be, I surrender to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.